Let's turn in our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm going to begin in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it to the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. He has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud in the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old men shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Let's pray together. What else can we pray than that your people would be satisfied with the goodness of the Lord? Would we see your goodness? Would we drink from your goodness? Would we be satisfied from your goodness? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you guys ever had a dream that was so wonderful, you just didn't want to wake up from it. I'm sure that's happened with you. A couple of weeks ago, I dreamed that the world was a Chuck E. Cheese ball pit. Like everywhere you went, it was plastic balls. You walk outside of your house and you're knee deep in these things, and you can't help but smile when you're walking in a ball pit. That's what I noticed about everyone. What we're reading in this passage is a dream from Jeremiah. He is dreaming, he is having a vision, and then we read in verse 26, at this I woke up and looked and my sleep was pleasant to me. We have finally arrived in the place of Jeremiah in the land of pleasant dreams. We've slogged through the first half of this book. It's been difficult to read and absorb the first half of Jeremiah, but now we arrive in this place, chapters 30 through 33, that's been called by commentators the Book of Consolation. That's what this is. It's a pleasant dream and vision. It's a book of consolation. That's good news because we've been hearing for a long time hard things about our sin. I think the reason you don't hear many sermons from Jeremiah, and certainly the reason you don't often hear somebody preach through the book of Jeremiah, is because Jeremiah just doesn't pull any punches when it comes to sin. He speaks about it so real, so raw, so abrasively, that it feels like your people can only hear the phrase vile whoredom so many times before you start losing members in the church. It's tough to slog through Jeremiah. I was dabbling in a personality profile book this week, and for whatever reason, the author decided to define sin in passing, and he said it was anything that inhibits the flow of love towards us. That's really cute. That ain't Jeremiah. That's not how he speaks about sin. This is the only time in my life I'm going to make this statement, but the prophet Jeremiah agrees with the singer Kesha. They're on the same page. Kesha, in her song, Praying, she says, Some people say you only get what you give, but there are some things only God can forgive. 
So like we can be out of sorts with another person. We can have a broken relationship with another person. That can affect us. But there are some things that are so deep and dark within us. Thoughts and ideas and passions and lusts and desires. Something is broken. Something is black. And it is only something that God could possibly forgive in us. Here are some of the memorable lines on sin that we've heard in the book. We've admitted to some of these in our confession of sin. The fear of me is not in you. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Everyone is a deceiver. No one speaks truth. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? They do not know how to blush. They refuse to know me. My soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears. We need to hear this whether we are a Christian or not yet a Christian. The reason God is so relentless in describing sin and calling us to repent in Jeremiah is that we cannot get to the gospel without it. When Jesus burst onto the scene in Galilee in his ministry, he began speaking to the crowds and he announced to them his message in just a few sentences in Mark 1.15. He said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom is here, repent and believe. I was hanging out with somebody recently and they said, what on earth do you mean by repentance? That's a fantastic question. Repentance, repenting, is agreeing with God in the book of Jeremiah that we have utterly rejected him and run from him. We agree with him in that and we turn from our running. Believing is trusting God in Jeremiah. It's understanding that while we were so busy running from God, we didn't realize that he in Christ was chasing after us. Being broken about our sin gets us ready for the book of consolation. Owning the bad news, it makes us ready to hear and to celebrate the good news. You could take verses 10 through 14, which I read, and you could break them down into two parts. The first part being our salvation, and the second part being our response to our salvation. And I just want to look at each of those very briefly. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about our salvation, but I want to say this. There is great gain in letting the lesser known portions of Scripture expand our idea of just what Jesus has done for us. I think all of us getting, get in a rut thinking about our salvation. We kind of think in narrow terms. We have narrow scriptures that we use and we kind of know Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he saved me. And that becomes the rut, the one metaphor or idea or place that we use to describe our salvation. And scripture hits us with thousands of places to understand what God has done for us in Christ. We know John 3.16. We know that God has so loved the world that he sent his son. We might know 2 Corinthians 5, that, that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be his righteousness. We know from Galatians 3 that Jesus, he absorbs the curse of the law so that we may be justified. Those are good. Those are precious. Those are critical truths we'll celebrate. But Jeremiah is a chance to expand just what we understand that Jesus has done. Verses 10 and 11 say, We're gathered 
were kept, were redeemed, were ransomed. Those are four ideas that each could use a sermon on their own. Jeremiah is saying that, that being lost, being outside of Christ, is like being scattered. We're far from the shepherd, we're far from other people, which makes us alone and vulnerable and easy prey. In our salvation, Jesus acts as a shepherd who gathers these far-flung sheep and brings them close and protects them in himself. That's what our salvation looks like. It's beautiful. Salvation is also in verse 11, like being rescued from hands too strong for him. This is a way we don't often think about what happened when we got saved. Jesus, he once described salvation as breaking into a strong man's house, binding him, and taking all his goods. Matthew 12, 29. We we don't think about it in this way. But the strong man is the enemy, Satan. He's got hands that are too strong for us. And Jesus says, my salvation is like kicking down the front door and binding the strong man and quenching his power and plundering that house and drawing saints to myself. That's what Jesus has done on the cross. He is victorious in redeeming us and bringing us into his hold. Well, if those are the metaphors of our salvation, if those are other ways to think about what God has done for us in Christ, look at our response to that in verses 12 through 14. If you've got your Bible open, just skim those three verses and think about what jumps out at you. You're reading them, you're hearing some words repeated. What's the major theme? The redeemed are happy. They're happy about their redemption. They shall sing. They shall be radiant. They shall rejoice. They shall dance. They shall be merry. Their mourning turns to joy. Their sorrow turns to gladness. There is joy all over this thing. We've been ransomed. We've been redeemed. We've been gathered. We've been shepherded. And that makes us happy. We're happy with those things. Uh, We had had in our former life this affair with ourselves. We were consumed by ourselves and what we desired and what we wanted. And even though we invested all of our time and all of our resources on ourselves, it still left us empty and anxious and grasping for something more. But now we have been wed to Christ and there is something so utterly soul-satisfying in knowing and walking with Jesus. I know you've had these moments of clarity in your Christian life because I know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and does this, but there are these moments when this clarity sneaks up on us. We can be here in worship or we can be at home walking the dog. We can be the height of a spiritual experience or this can happen right after we've done an egregious sin against the Lord. And it's like our hearts bubble over and say, God, I want you. I love you. I truly love you and I don't want anything that distracts from my joy in you. You're beautiful. You're pure. You're good, and you make me happy. Being with you makes me happy. 
us, the spirit inside of us taking this salvation and bringing out the good emotions of joy. And in our Christian life, we are learning that Jesus' arms are big enough to carry our joy and strong enough to transform our sorrow. He can do that for us. When we read passages like this in the prophets, we're wrestling with the concept of the already and the not yet. We've heard this before. We're getting like a sneak peek. We're getting a foretaste of what God wants to do ultimately for us. So that means that already we have access to these verses. Everything we read in 10 to 14 is absolutely true. Any believer in this room can reach in and grab a hold of this promise, and it will be true for you already but it will not yet be fully fulfilled in the way that God is going to do it ultimately. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. You have access to the book of Consolation. You can grab a hold of this thing. You can memorize this thing. You can bank your life on this thing. It is true now. You will dance today now, but in that final day, you'll dance forever. You will have some sorrow turned into gladness now, but on that final day, all sorrow will be turned to gladness. I want to look at just four places that this already not yet joy can be found. Like if you're looking in your Christian life, where do I express this? Where do I feel this? Is this me alone in my prayer closet trying to drum up joy? Jeremiah 31 gives us a bunch of places, but I want to give us four where we can grab a hold of the book of consolation and make it applicable to us today. Number one, singing together in worship. Like getting together what we do on Sunday morning and singing together. Look at verse 12. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. This is what believers are going to do. They're going to get together and they're going to sing. One of the signs that a Christian enjoys being born again is that they want to get together with God's people and express their happiness in him together. What we do on Sunday morning is something you can't replicate anywhere else. It's not just singing by yourself on the way to work, which is beautiful. It's not just singing with your family at home around the dinner table, which is beautiful. There is something we do here now gathering as Israel at Zion that you cannot replicate anywhere else in your life. And this is going to change the way we think about coming to Sunday worship. Yes, we come to see our friends, but that's not all we do. Yes, we come to see what's being served on the snack table, but that's not all we do. Yes, we come to hear what the preacher is going to say, but that's not all we do. I am coming this morning to prove myself expectant in the joy of Jesus. That's my role. I'm showing up here, and I am expecting that the Spirit is going to move, and I'm going to be happy in my salvation, and I am going to express that happiness before all these people that I'm just starting to meet in my life. And when I do that, that is going to communicate something that nothing else in this worship service can do. We can do a confession of sin, we can do an assurance of salvation, we can preach a fantastic sermon, but unless you have warm bodies in seats expressing the joy they find in Christ, this will fall on deaf ears. We come hungry. 
We come expectant. We are showing the joy that we have in Christ. That's one of the places a born-again believer shows the fruit of salvation. Number two, enjoying God's good gifts together. Verse 12 again. I love this. You can print this out. You can put it in your kitchen. Put it in your dining room. It says, They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. One of the signs that a believer enjoys being born again is that they invite people over for dinner and they don't skimp on the menu. That's like a sign that someone has been born again. You've got meat, you've got gluten, you've got fatty oil, you've got alcohol, you've got something at the table that's going to offend somebody in this room, but altogether it, it just spells this luxurious meal. Because I'm a believer in Christ and I'm having somebody in my home, I'm not getting the Trader Joe's $6 bottle of wine. I'm going to Publix and getting an $8.99 bottle of wine because I've been born again and I can be lavish with the gifts that God has given me. I know as believers we get a little squeamish about this, right? Because it's not clear where does worship begin and idolatry end. Like, how lavish can I be? How much can I celebrate? I think one of the differences between a glutinous man who worships his stomach and a grateful believer who receives from the Lord is that the believer, verse 12, is radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Whatever events, whatever meal, whatever celebration, whatever gathering I'm having, could I use that phrase? that I am radiant over the goodness of the Lord. The thing, the meal, the item, the event, the destination, it's not an end in itself. It's an avenue for me to come and show my thanksgiving and draw other people in and be radiant over his goodness in worship. We come, we gather, we sing together. We bring people to our dinner table. Number three, we receive daily water. Verse 12, again, this is my favorite line in the book of Consolation. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. I dare you to say that on Monday morning. I dare you when you walk into your workplace and somebody says, a coworker, how are you doing? You know, honestly... I feel like a well-watered garden. That's where I'm at right now. That's kind of how I feel. I dare you to say that this week. This is Garden of Eden language. God, right here, right now, is starting a project in you that is going to last forever. He's bringing goodness. He's bringing life. He's bringing fruit. You look like a fruitful garden. You wake up in the morning and your roots go deep in the soil and Jesus will water you and make you whole. You receive daily water from him. You're singing in worship. You're gathering around the dinner table. You are receiving daily water. Finally, number four, you are exchanging sorrow for gladness. That's going to be the hardest one on this list. We saw this in verse 13, mourning for joy, sorrow for gladness. This doesn't mean we walk around as happy-go-lucky Christians who can't be sad again. But if being born again changes the way we come to worship, 
If being born again changes the way we eat meals with other people, if being born again changes the way we receive grace daily from God, it's also going to change the way we cry. It's going to change the way we grieve. When we're sad, we don't grieve like we used to. We don't grieve like the world grieves. We grieve as those who are broken and distraught, but are waiting for a full and an everlasting joy. Our joy in Jesus touches even the darkest places in our heart that make us sad. Let's pray together. Father, it's really hard to sit in our seats and try our darndest to be happy in you. We can't do that. We can't drum up these emotions. It takes your spirit inside of us to make us happy, make us joyful, make us celebratory in the goodness that you've done. And I plead with you that we would be a people who sing, who eat, who radiate, who receive water, and who grieve differently because the joy that you have brought to us in this book of consolation that has your son Jesus written all over it. Would you do that in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.